0: Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide leaders with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving health industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's Trending News Europe episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamics' Jack Young and Ollie May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following lately?
1: A leading medical oncology society called ESMO, or the European Society of Medical Oncology, with over 25,000 members, has made a pretty bold claim. And they're calling for a change in how we name tumours. So, as we know, the conventional method for treating cancer is focused on the organ uh, where the tumor originated. However, recent developments in things like precision oncology have revealed a growing divergence between this classification and the molecular profiling of tumors. And the renowned French medical oncologist Fabrice Andre has suggested that organ based classification of cancer is really proving to be a barrier to progress in cancer research. And he believes that it makes it harder for patients to obtain effective drugs. It disrupts medical education and also confuses patients.
2: This makes a lot of sense, Jack, especially when you consider that metastatic cancers account for up to 90% of cancer deaths. And if we are able to treat these people, as you say, based on the molecular based classification, we could really improve the overall chance of survival. And from a UK perspective, I think this is even more critical, considering the UK has slipped to 33rd place out of 41 developed nations when it comes to cancer mortality. So the UK is now behind countries like Australia, France, Germany and Spain. And this is at a time when in the UK, 35% of patients are now waiting over two months for treatment following a suspected urgent cancer referral. And for context, the target is 15%.
1: Yeah, staggering statistics, Ollie. And, you know, as you said, there's a real strain at the moment in cancer treatment, particularly in the UK. And this molecular approach, as you outlined, could really support help saving lives. And it's really quite startling when you realise just how many people have lost their lives so sadly that could have benefited potentially from molecular based treatment. To it brings to life a little bit more, uh, and there's an example 10 years ago where investigators showed that in a clinical trial that the drug nivolumab could improve outcomes for cancer patients, and this particular treatment shrank some trial participants' tumours by more than 30%. And this drug targets PD-1, and this is a receptor of the protein called pdl one which helps cancer cells escape attack from the immune system, regardless of their organ of origin. So clearly, the logical next step in this case would have been to conduct clinical trials that tested the effects of nivolumab in patients with metastatic tumours, agnostic of the organ in which the cancer had originated. However, because of the way that cancers are classified currently as breast, kidney, lung, and so on, researchers had to conduct clinical trials sequentially for each particular disease type. And so, for about a decade, millions of people with tumours expressing the high levels of this protein PDL1 were not able to access relevant drugs because trials had not been conducted for their particular type of cancer when they had become unwell.
2: It's really stark when you hear how that current attachment to classifying cancer and therefore addressing it on the basis of the organ in which it originated really is stalling progress in so many ways. For example, in France and in some other European countries, Patients are not reimbursed if they take drugs which are not targeted to the organ of origin, which is a real barrier to entry. And similar scientific organisations, such as ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and as Jack mentioned, ESMO, organise their meetings and issue their guidelines, all according to the organ of origin. Jack, what do you see as the solution or future for the adoption of molecular-based cancer treatment?
1: From what I've read, Ollie, there are really two key ways to shift the dial in this area. The first is around restructuring overall oncology practices and improving guidelines. So regulatory agencies, scientific societies and insurance companies need to really do a better job of defining what preclinical and clinical evidence is required to determine whether this molecular-based treatment should be used. And in fact, some scientific societies are already developing guidelines along these lines. And the second is improving access to molecular testing. So more people need access to the tests that reveal the molecular makeup of their tumour cells. We also need to reduce the costs of these tests because at present they cost around €1,000 in Europe.
2: And this is becoming ever more important. In the UK, cancer cases are projected to reach an extra 2,000 extra patients per week by 2040 on top of the levels that we have today. So this guidance could help turn the tide on cancer mortality in the UK. And I really feel like if we're able to improve guidelines and improve access to molecular testing, as you said, Jack, we could really help those patients who need urgent care the most.
0: One thing that never ceases to amaze me about healthcare is just how what to lay people might seem like a small thing, like naming convention can actually have a massive impact not only on the science of how medicines come to market, but also which patients get treated, which patients get reimbursed. And I think this story really underscores the importance of scientific agencies, of medical societies, of public health agencies in being able to issue guidelines and keep those guidelines up to date. It reminds me of another space in which guidelines play such an outsized role in health and public health in particular. And that is in the area of vaccination, vaccine schedules, and preventative therapies of that nature. Which reminds me, I think I was seeing a story recently about an uptick in measles in Europe as vaccinations are decreasing. Ali, can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: So this is the World Health Organization has called for urgent vaccinations as cases of measles have surged in Europe. So for those of you who don't know, measles is a highly contagious airborne disease caused by a virus that can lead to severe complications such as meningitis, hearing loss, and in extreme cases, even death. According to the World Health Organization, there's been a 30-fold increase in cases of measles across Europe from around 900 cases in 2022 to 30,000 cases in 2023. And in the UK... The NHS now says that more than 3.5 million children are unprotected and at risk of becoming ill.
1: This is really shocking, Ollie, given that I thought measles was a distant memory and, and potentially eliminated back in 2017. So what do you think of the reasons for this resurgence and why it's happened so quickly?
2: So it turns out there is a significant distinction between elimination, which is what we achieved, as you say, in 2017, and eradication. So eradication is when the disease has been reduced globally to zero with no risk of the disease coming back. So for example, smallpox. And a key point here is that measles itself is one of the most contagious diseases that exists. It's five times more infectious than COVID-19. So it really is critical for public health bodies to ensure vaccination coverage is above a 95% threshold to prevent its circulation in the general population. And each percentage point that falls below that 95% then represents a significant risk, since usually the unimmunized tend to be grouped in certain areas or groups. So, a key impact from the COVID pandemic is that we had a 5% decrease in coverage of nearly all vaccines. And we are still seeing that trend and the consequences of that. This is coupled with a view that measles is a trivial illness. There is complacency in the general population, leading to a drop in the number of MMR vaccinations. So in specific areas, for example, in pockets around London, like Hackney and Camden, uptake can be as low as 56%, so far below that 95% target. And as I'm sure you can imagine, the disease can then potentially spread, especially in those areas.
1: One thing I've found particularly interesting about what you just mentioned there, Ollie, is that there are these pockets within countries which have low levels of MMR vaccines. And I do wonder whether vaccine scepticism, which was shown largely throughout COVID, as we saw, is now also rearing its head in this area in terms of routine vaccine systems. Because clearly doctors and others in healthcare have that really pivotal role to play when it comes to getting on top of these surges in cases and education of patients. But I'd love to hear from you in terms of what you see about some of the ways in which we can navigate these currently low vaccination rates.
2: Absolutely, Jack. In terms of the resources that we have, healthcare professionals are by far the most important as they're the ones on the front line, they're trusted, and they're explaining the importance of vaccination to their patients. In addition to them, World Health Organization Europe is supporting countries with large outbreaks in conducting case investigations and identifying and vaccinating susceptible contacts. So they are starting to implement infection control in healthcare settings. And in the UK specifically, the Health Security Agency has now actually declared a national incident over surge and measles across the country. The NHS has started a major vaccination catch-up campaign, including patient education. You know, they're really recognizing that vaccinations have dropped since COVID and how can we address that? And the NHS is also sending out texts to all parents, encouraging them to get their children vaccinated.
1: I think it's just such a large lesson for us all just to continue to make those consistent interventions against these potentially deadly infectious diseases, which can rebound after the point at which we think they've been eliminated. It's also a reminder for public health bodies to be really vigilant in the face of lingering vaccine hesitancy.
0: I think, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of vaccine skepticism, both for you know the newer COVID, potentially the newer RSV vaccines as well. But for those traditional vaccines, think about seasonal flu uptake being lower than pre-COVID years, as well as seeing some of that same hesitancy for regularly scheduled vaccines. I think public health agencies have a really tough job sometimes. They're kind of caught between navigating these sort of older problems that crop back up, things that we thought we had overcome, but they're also dealing with newer technologies and how do they provide guidance to combat, maybe not like a measles outbreak or epidemic or a COVID-19 pandemic, but looking at those diseases that are really prevalent, such as you know cardiovascular disease and how do they leverage new technologies to combat that and provide the appropriate guidance and resources to be able to do so. I saw an interesting story coming out of Sweden about an innovative approach that they're taking when it comes to cardiovascular health.
1: Yeah, we often cover the Nordic countries on this podcast. They always seem to be doing fun and exciting things. And I love to hear stories or read about stories whereby there's that intersection between health and technology. And Sweden have been using drones to fight cardiac arrest. And I used to think about drones in the context of beautiful photographs and package delivery, but they're now using drones in Sweden to redefine the crucial aspects of healthcare for patients suffering cardiac arrest. And in Sweden, the survival rates of patients with cardiac arrest is the same as it was, unfortunately, 10 years ago. And although there's been thousands of automated external defibrillators and they've been installed in public spaces such as shopping centres, it really hasn't made a significant difference. And this new Swedish research study has shown that drones are obviously much faster than ambulances. That was shown in more than two or three cases when used to deliver and administer those life-saving defibrillators.
2: I love this story, Jack, and it's a great innovation. I'd love to know if in the UK we had the same stalling in cardiac arrest outcomes because here as well we see these external defibrillators. They've been distributed everywhere, but are they actually resulting in patients receiving care quicker? It's good to know with drones that beyond the hype, as you say, of people using them on holidays, that they really do have applicability in emergency and acute situations. These are the enterprise and system-level uses for this technology. And I suppose if this works for cardiac arrest, there's no reason this couldn't be applied for other medical purposes. I'm thinking about if you wanted to use drones to deliver an auto injector of adrenaline, if you're having an allergic reaction. I've got a nut allergy, so it'd be amazing if they could deliver that to patients within a few minutes. Or an axolone spray in the case of a drug overdose, perhaps, or a trauma dressing in the case of a traffic accident?
1: Yeah, I think Ollie, there's hopeful some broad use of this new technology, hopefully in the UK. And I think the NHS is looking at using drones to strengthen their supply network as well. And one of the key trusts, the NHS Northumberland Trust is currently partnering with Silicon Valley based company Zipline to deliver medical supplies by drone to improve services to hundreds of thousands of people. And these drones can be in the air within two minutes of requests. They can cut delivery times by hours and they allow a much more effective use of overall inventory. They can also travel at almost 70 miles an hour, which is quite scary when you think about it, and can carry three kilograms of frequently used supplies from medicines to joint replacement implants.
2: It's great to see this tangible development in the NHS. I guess in the news, typically it's comments around quality of care not being met, but seeing the NHS really embrace these new innovations uh, is amazing to see. And this is particularly after we saw the Department of Health's medical technology strategy announced earlier last year. One of the things they listed was resilience and continuity of supply as one of their top priorities. And also thinking back to our podcast last month around the decarbonization of surgical practice and the utilisation of drones could really support some of those NHS net zero commitments as the carbon emissions associated with drones and logistics are far less than traditional vehicles, along with, obviously, as we've been discussing, the materials reaching their destination quicker. And this is a topic that we're really excited about at Dynamic, as we've recently, two weeks ago, been selected for the NHS consultancy framework to support with transformations like this.
1: Yeah, exciting developments there, Ollie. Now, and you wouldn't get through a podcast without mentioning sustainability, given your huge passion for that area. And I think it is a great opportunity for drones to support NHS net zero targets, as well as reducing those waiting times. And you might have heard about the NHS using drones to deliver chemotherapy treatments, which can be picked up and dropped to cancer patients, even on the same day. And it was initially used on the Isle of Wight just off the coast of the UK, where chemo was flown directly from the mainland to the island, where staff collected it, distributed it to hospital teams and patients suffering with cancer. And also other European nations, such as Belgium, which have conducted Europe's first transport of blood bags by drone last year, are also helping to pave the way for optimising the availability of medical resources and supporting emergency care services.
0: I find this story so exciting. It's one of those things that you hear that really makes me feel like we are living now in the future of healthcare. I remember when I started at Dynamic six years ago, seeing an aspirational picture of a drone delivering medicine as sort of what we could strive for in the future of health. And now knowing not only are chemotherapy drugs being delivered, but defibrillators, drones are being networked into the variety of tools that are available to provide decentralized care and improve access to healthcare, particularly in more remote or rural situations, is really inspiring to me. As always, Jack and Ali, we know the only constant in the health industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. To help more listeners find the podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, or leave a review. For more information about this episode and the team behind it, check out trendinghealth.com. And to learn more about how Dynamic helps health companies transform by connecting strategy to action, visit dynamic.com.